This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The Blue Cliff Record, Case 6. Uman said, I don't ask you about before the 15th day. Try to make a statement about after the 15th day. He himself replied, Every day is a good day. The verse, Throwing away one, he picks up seven. Above, below, in the four directions, none can match. Placidly walking along, he treads down the sound of the flowing stream. His relaxed gaze discerns the tracks of flying birds. Grasses grow thick, mists overhang. Round Sabuti's cliff, the flowers make a mess. Voidness is lamentable. Don't make a move. If you move, you get 30 blows. We can use this case in the verse as a stepping stone to continue our discussion of uh, post-enlightenment practice. The imagery of the poem, uh, of his uh, Uman's question about the 15th day, is based on a calendar in which the full moon, which is our symbol of enlightenment, occurs in, on the 15th day of the month. So Uman is literally asking, don't tell me about before, try to make a statement after. When no one in the audience knew how to respond, he himself said, every day is a good day. And in doing that, he cuts through a distinction that um, preoccupied most of uh, his audience uh, before and since, the whole notion of before and after enlightenment and what uh, transformation that is. And his use of before and after can open up for us um, other uh, dichotomies, dualities such as uh, inside and outside and self and other and self and world. And how do we uh, see those uh, being transformed after the 15th. Now the verse points out a particular kind of um, uh, ditch or place where people get stuck. And it's one place we can start often in order to um, 
be clear about a solution, you have to first um, see all the uh, errors you can make uh, getting there. Um, someone asked me once, uh, how did you get to be so wise? And I laughed and I said, well, I uh, started by doing every wise, th- unwise thing anyone could ever think of and sort of went through all of those one by one, eliminating them. Uh, we have to see all the unwise things we do first. And uh, this verse is about one place people get stuck. It says, throwing away one, he picks up seven. Uh, throwing away one is this sense of throwing away oneness or a kind of um, picture of enlightenment as getting into any one state, right? This is a particular picture we carry around where we think we're going to break through to or slowly cultivate some state of uh, absolute equanimity. And then uh, that will be the one permanent thing in this impermanent universe. So throwing away one, he picks up seven. Letting go of that picture of one oneness. Picks up seven, he picks up multiplicity. The number seven is arbitrary. Um, it's the many. And placidly walking along, this is sort of at home in the world. Um, following the sounds of the stream, being very clear-eyed, so clear-eyed you can even see tracks, the tracks the birds make in the sky as they go past. That's pretty clear-eyed. But at the same time, walking in a world where grasses grow thick and the mists overhang, this is sort of a symbol of entanglement and non-clarity, right? So you're at home both in that world of clarity and unclarity. You're not in one or the other. Subhuti is his um, foil here. Uh, Subhuti was a disciple of uh, the Buddha who was renowned for being able to enter into deep states of samadhi, of emptiness, dwelling deeply in emptiness. Uh, and apparently this was so impressive, the gods showered him with flowers. Well, Uman's take on that is all those flowers just make a mess, right? Um, what do you think you're doing, right? Hiding out in the void. And in a sense, what we see is Subhuti's solution, Subhuti's achievement, leaves him uh, with a relationship only to the gods. Right? It's a transcendent kind of practice that the gods admire, but it doesn't have much to do with the rest of the world or anybody else. So Uman uh, gives his ver- verdict that voidness is lamentable. Getting stuck there is a shame, not an achievement. Don't make a move. If you move, you get dirty blows. See, again, uh, that can open us up to the next 
step of what we imagine. Don't make a move is a a kind of fantasy of impeccability. If you move, you get 30 blows. So don't move. Don't let anybody catch you. You'll get punished, right? Is there such a way? Is there any way to not make a move in this life? Right? How do you avoid the 30 blows? Well, basically you can't if you're alive. Right? You can try this move of sabutis, of transcendence. But if you're going to live in this world, uh, you've got to move. You've got to uh, engage, and you're going to get your 30 blows. It's unavoidable. Yet our fantasy is always that we're going to find some trick that will let us escape uh, consequences of, of being alive. See, the basic position that most people will have to start with growing up is one of helplessness and vulnerability. And in that state, all of us to one extent or another, feel like we were either neglected or injured, to some extent. It's the root of the suffering that ends up bringing us to to practice. And like this verse, we we start off looking for strategies to avoid being hit. and it means that we develop a, an initial stance towards others that basically says, are you going to heal me or are you going to hurt me? Are you going to repair the damage done to me when I was young or are you going to re-injure me, going to hit me again? And the world gets experienced just in terms of what are you going to do to me or for me? Right? And our own stance from that position is, uh, is passive in that all the strength, all the agency for good or ill is out in the other person. And so the, the danger in that, that mode is that we live in a world entirely in which all the power is in the other, however that other is perceived, whether the world at large, a spouse, a teacher, whatever it is. And our preoccupation is, what are they going to do to me? And we have no real agency in repairing ourself. All we can do is try to get what we need or be careful we don't get hurt. So we can be in an extremely passive position. And our first attempt out of that passivity is through, basically through discernment or what really becomes hypervigilance. I can't control the other but I can get really careful about 
sussing out what kind of person the other is. Are they good or are they bad? Are they going to help me or are they going to hurt me? And that first stance is one in which we get very preoccupied often about checking people out in a, as I say, a hypervigilant kind of way of seeing are they really what, how they appear? Or is there something hidden behind that curtain? Are they going to reveal some bad side to themselves that's going to jump out at me and re-traumatize me? Or do they have all the goodies? Are they the one who's finally going to heal me? Do they have the magic wand or the bomb or the wisdom or the insight? Right? And we try to get very good at figuring out who is out there that's got what I need. Right? But all our agency, again, is now into discernment right? and trying to figure it out. The next step out of that may be in trying to own more agency because part of where we're trying to get to is having some uh, capacity to take charge of our own life, its own direction. We still tend to think that what we need is in the hands of others. But we start thinking that, well, maybe I can influence the other person. I, it's not just a matter of my seeing if they're good or bad, but maybe I can win them over. And usually this takes us into a stage of uh, compliance of one kind or another. I will figure out what the other person wants or needs and if I really get good at figuring that out and doing it, then either they'll take care of me, or at least they won't hurt me. I'll be safe. Right? And so there we get a model of agency as taking that position of compliance or submission or in uh, this business, discipleship being a good student, right? A lot of Zen centers, a lot of practice places are filled with people who see in a teacher the person with the power, the person to, who can either hurt or heal, and everything they call practice is mostly about just getting on their good side so they can get what they need, right? And that... Whatever they're doing on the cushion, really what they want is that kind of let me just be in the presence of the person who needs, has what I need, and maybe I'll finally get it. Right? And this is a kind of stage of practice that's focused on a guru, teacher is guru, who um, is the embodiment of what's missing in you. Right? And we're still at a stage where we don't have any idea of how to get generated ourselves, but we feel like the best we can do is be given it by the person who has it. And that always leads to some kind of um, 
relationship of uh, dependency and compliance. Now, after a while, we may move into another stage of practice where we say, I'm really tired of trying to uh, wait for somebody else to give it to me. I'm really going to make it for myself. This can come about two kinds of ways. If we're focused on the side of safety, if we've been traumatized in one way or another, uh, the first move is going to be uh, the autonomy of nobody's ever going to do that to me again. And I will keep myself safe by never putting myself in a vulnerable position anymore. And so I'm going to repudiate the stance that says, you've got it, I don't, and try to move to autonomy, where I'm, I'm going to have it myself, and I'm not going to need you for anything. And very often, people in that mode will... Um, end up like Sabuti, actually. Uh, They will be people who try to generate in their own consciousness, in their own self, everything that was missing and become completely spiritually, emotionally uh, autonomous. Um, Part of the dilemma of that solution is if you really want to be safe and autonomous, it helps to pare your personal needs down to nothing so that you don't need anybody else for anything. Uh, So asceticism is uh, often an accompaniment of this uh, position. And you can go pretty far with that. Uh, The dilemma is that it cuts you off uh, from everyone in the um, interest of safety and um, self-creation. Another move in that position in an attempt to recover agency uh, but moving out of uh, compliance So you try to change sides in a certain way, and you um, try to become the uh, the giver. And the way uh, that usually works is that um, in response to my own need neediness or vulnerability, which I don't know what to do with, I decide that. Really, all that neediness is um, in other people. And I see their suffering. I see their needs. Uh, and I will devote myself to taking care of them. I will become a good person. And by being good, I will try to heal what's uh, missing in myself or hurt in myself. 
and I will um, devote myself in a bodhisattva-like fashion to the needs of others. Now this has the advantage uh, over Sabuti's position of at least being very related. It gets you in the world and you do actually do some, some good. Uh, the pitfall here is what I've called uh, saving all beings minus one. Uh, you really still can't stand the idea that you're as needy as all the people that you're helping. Uh, one way or another, you, emotion, you project emotionally onto the other people all the vulnerability you can't stand, and you help them. And you never let yourself be in the position of getting, only giving. A, a version of this is often that a person... Um, can feel so worthless or damaged in themselves that they don't feel that they deserve anything. They don't deserve uh, to be given anything. But they will redeem themselves. They'll try to get themselves back to being a worthwhile person in terms of everything that they give to others. There you get a kind of bodhisattvahood that's secretly about self-redemption. But it usually is um, an endless and a hopeless task. Uh, People in that position usually are throwing snow into a well. They'll never fill it up. You know, it's no matter how good they, many good deeds they do, uh, they never get to the point of feeling truly good about themselves. Uh, I mean, and just in the sense that they're never allowed to stop doing good, right? Uh, It's their only identity, only meaning in life is what they do for others. Um, I guess they're useful people to have around, but uh, not a happy place to, uh, to end up. Now what we have to be working, what we're working towards here is trying to find some balance between vulnerability and agency. We're trying to find how are we supposed to fit in with other people in the world? What's the right kind of fit? And it has to in some way end up where both agency and vulnerability are equally shared on both sides of the equation, right? So that uh, goodness and agency don't just belong to a, a teacher and I own all the vulnerability and all the passivity, nor is it a matter of all the abjectness is projected out and I'm just going to be giving and doing all the time for all those poor people out there, right? Somehow we have to see ourselves as um, both giver and given to and find a way to own both of those positions. Now that fit is um, 
easier said than done. And in the verse of this, uh, you have a kind of uh, very uh, romanticized or bucolic picture of just sort of wandering the fields through all kinds of conditions, uh, freely moving through all forms. Hard to figure out what that looks like in practice. It brings us back to our um, Putai here, who, as we said yesterday, his mind is uh, like tofu. In a round bowl, it's round. In a square bowl, it's square. That's a picture of perfect fit, right? And yesterday, I used that as a model in contradistinction to the model of, uh, of effort. And this kind of uh, practice is an, uh, a means to an end of uh, endless uh, attaining, fixing, or extirpating. Right? Um, A lot of practice uh, got stuck in a metaphor of a kind of uh, battle against the self, battle against ego, or however we conceptualized uh, the parts of ourselves that were rigid and constraining. And so there's a lot of military metaphors in Zen of killing the ego. And a lot of Sashin's... look like they tried to do it literally, not metaphorically. Uh, And so we were trying to say, all right, let's frame a post-enlightenment practice where we're not in that business of killing anything off, but we're just trying to practice in a way that emphasizes presence rather than transformation into something else, right? An emphasis on presence, regardless of content, is, is what you hear in Uman saying, every day is a good day. Right? Regardless of the content of the day, we're present in that day. Um, we show up to that and the immediacy, the vividness of it, its presence, is what we're concerned about, is its goodness. Not goodness in terms of uh, good versus bad, but the, the goodness of the absolute, of just being present right now, right now. Yeah. And the image of the tofu in the bowl is, uh, is an image of effortless, fitting in, non-separation, with any set of circumstances. Whatever shape the bowl it is, we adapt to that. And that's a good way to practice up to a point. But we have to um, go beyond that, I think. Because... um, First of all, if we're honest, we're not really tofu. 
we are not really quite that uh, fluid and flexible that we can fit into any shape container no matter what, right? Joko at one point uh, wrote, I could live with anybody, right? But it was also true that she divorced the husband when he became psychotic and endangered her children. You know, you, you draw the line somewhere. Or you better, right? And most of us, uh, if we're honest, cannot fit into any situation, certainly not any relationship, Right? or any job uh, equally well, right? which would be the ideal of that kind of image. Uh, it's more going to start feeling procrustean than tofuish, right? that there's going to be some piece of us getting truncated. Um, and what we have to recognize is that we're not just the tofu, but we're, we're also in charge of making the bowl. Right? That's part of the recovery of agency, and what I was talking about before. Uh, it's not our job to be simply so passive and so fluid that we fit naturally into whatever is offered. It's also the case that we need to find the right kind of agency to create a bowl for ourselves where it's a good fit. And it's part of what we try to do in designing a sashin. Uh, there are lots of models of sashin out there. Uh, I try to reinvent them a little bit, not uh, completely from scratch, obviously, but find ways to create a container for this experience that's going to be a good fit. And there is no one good fit for everybody. And there's a way in which that container is always going to be a work in progress, right? Uh, we don't have to have a kind of practice that says, well, this is the bowl fit in it, right? Uh, that's a kind of procrustean or kill the ego kind of practice, right? Whatever doesn't fit, you just cut off. Well, we don't really want that as a model for our life. We want to have agency in the structuring of the container. That's agency in structuring our practice and our lives and our relationship. Now, the next big question, which maybe I'll take up again further tomorrow, but why do things take the shape they do? Who made the bowl? And how much uh, flexibility do we have as bowl makers? Say, Uman, in another famous koan, asks, uh, the world is vast and wide. Why do you put on your robe at the sound of the bell? Uh, There are all these possible shapes for bowls. Why are we always using these little round ones? <laughs> right? Now, Uman's answer 
and the answer that really comes down to us in Sotos and particularly is uh, to drop the why. Uh, the world is vast and wide. When the bell sounds, we put on our robes. That the universal, the vastness of the world is expressed, embodied in our particular life through the form of putting on our robes, the form of, in fact, being a monk. Uh, so for, for Uman and for Dogen, uh, the answer to why do we put on our robes is the, like the answer of uh, why do birds fly and why do fish swim? Uh, for them, it's totally inherent in our nature for our true self to take this form. Right? And what, is, what came down to us through, from Dogen was a sense, this deep uh, you know, uh, sense that the form of zazen, this form of seated meditation, the life of being a monk, was the fullest expression of what it meant to be human. That's really what he, he believed. He, uh, the th- part that we most quote from him is that practice and realization are one. He was um, really the best person to articulate this sense that practice is not a means to an end. Right, the zazen is not. Says zazen is not a technique of meditation. It's the dharma gate of enjoyment and ease. Right? It's not a technique. We don't sit zazen in order to become something else. We sit zazen to express what we already are. A bird doesn't fly to become more bird-like, right? It's already as birdy as it's going to get. <laughs> and in a, this is really what Dogen is saying about zazen: is that we don't do zazen in order to transform ourselves into Buddhas, but that every time we sit down and like this, we are fully expressing uh, what it is to. <coughs> that we call human, what we call enlightened, what we call Buddha. It's all right there, just in sitting. This is because this is pure presence. That's what Zazen is, we could say. And uh, as happens with people who are religious geniuses, they tend to get carried away (laughs) with their vision of, of things. So Dogen did not, not only said uh, Zazen is the perfect expression of uh, realization, but I happen to have a list of 600 rules for monastic life that are also the perfect expression of uh, being enlightened. Uh, If you feel like what your goal is here, what we... And a big part of what presence is about, we could say, is reuniting 
the, the sacred and the, the everyday. All right? Uh, this is another one of those before and after the 15th splits right? that we're trying to unify in our practice. What's sacred? What's profane? Is there a difference? Right? And so one of the goals of a certain kind of monastic ideal is to have a form of life that perfectly embodies in every aspect, morning to night, realization, right? Where everything is sacramentalized. And often that means everything is ritualized, right? As a way to remind us of the sacred in the midst of doing the dishes and going to the bathroom and sweeping the floor as well as in uh, Zazen. So you get a picture of perfect presence, perfect uh, unity of uh, the transcendent and the ordinary in this form of life that's supposed to embody it perfectly. Now that works very well if you're a monk, but if not, what are you supposed to do? Uh, The dilemma is that if you have that vision of things or that tradition that you inherit, uh, you're liable to think that everything else that you do is just sort of a falling away from that ideal. And so the real challenge in a kind of lay practice, if you're not going to live the life... uh, of a Japanese monk, how do you have that same kind of unity of of the sacred and the ordinary? Now, there are lots of different kinds of solutions to that, and that's the first um, lesson, uh, that we tend to uh, get stuck when we find an embodiment of that kind of unity to think it's the embodiment of it. It's the one and only, right? And that's the big challenge, I think, in in almost every practice. Uh, It's very easy to get stuck thinking that my eureka moment is the moment that everybody's supposed to have, right? Um, But putting down one and picking up seven might open us up to the possibility of pluralism as well. Maybe there's seven different ways to do this right, not one. Um, Another version I've always been very attracted to is found um, in the writings of Wendell Berry. You know him? He writes, a farmer in Kentucky, writes beautifully about how Man, the sacred and nature all come together in a life of farming. Um, See, we can find the sacred and the transcendent in nature, for instance, right? But what's our relationship to nature? Uh, Is what's awe-inspiring about nature present only in wilderness? Uh, where as soon as we walk into it, we spoil it? 
Or is there some way in which our relationship to nature can be one in which we have our own agency that we're not just passively standing there going, wow, you know, that's what a view. But we're engaged in actively some way as participants in it. So for Barry, uh, being a farmer is that perfect joining of uh, agency and dependency. Dependent on the land, but you also transform the land. You make the land into the container that's a perfect fit for you. It's a beautiful vision. I've read his books for uh, 30 years at least now. I love them. I have shelves of them. But I would no more become a farmer than I will become a uh, Japanese monk at Eheiji. And that's the dilemma. You, You can see this picture of of a unity and it's really it works but it's not my life and that is the uh, challenge that we all particularly have in lay practice to figure out how what kind of bowl are we going to be making for for ourselves right to put our not so squishy tofu into right We do that, and when we try to figure out how do we make a sashin for lay people and older lay people, right? What's what really suits you? What fits? Um, You should all really have the question: uh, If I was designing this sashin, how would I do it? Right? Really, all I'd like you all to think about that. Don't just treat sashin as. You show up to it and you like these parts and you grumble about these other parts. Um, It's a challenge to write your own schedule, to think about, well, how would I really do this? What would suit me and what would suit the people around me? So we are all doing this together in a way that uh, brings out the best in all of us and we support each other. When you're home, you have to figure out your own schedule. Do you sit every day? Do you just come Saturdays? What do you do? Well, this is a bigger version of that. How do we uh, decide what to do here? We're given this chance. It's pretty rare for people like us to take a few days off and just sit. How do you want to do that? We don't have to be completely passive in the face of that question, right? Um, you haven't noticed we're the grown-ups now. We get to decide what to do, right? <laughs> well, so this is one shape of bowl I'm offering you. Uh, but it's not stone, right? It's, it's much more flexible than you imagine. And so we're all going to try to co-create it together. Uh, that's really the task of, uh, of our practice, uh, to co-create the practice we all want to have. We're not, you're not just in the position of taking it, receiving it from me. Whether you realize it or not, you're all in the business of co-creating this session. Uh, 